Welcome to this podcast from Greater Boston on WGBH2. It is one in a series of interviews with authors conducted by Greater Boston host Emily Rooney. Our podcasts are made possible through the generous contributions of WGBH viewers and listeners like you. Thanks for joining us. And now, here's Emily. Tom Brokaw anchored the NBC Nightly News for over 20 years and still keeps a foot in the door. His bestseller, The Greatest Generation, focused on life during the Depression and World War II. And now he has a new book, Boom, Voices of the 60s, Personal Reflections on the 60s and Today. He describes that generation as the first to be cooler than their own kids. I like that. Well, it was my, it was my friend Tom McGuane who said that. Yeah. It's, got, it's caused a little dispute among the kids, by the way. Yeah. Are you, what are you kidding? But you, you describe this decade as amazing. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, the Vietnam War. What made Changed it so? the political alignment of America. But it also gave African Americans their long overdue step into some sense of equality in this country that was legalized, codified in the, in the Federal Civil Rights Act and also in the Voting Rights Act. It began the rise of women's rights in this country in a profound way. So there was a lot of turmoil that came out of the 60s, but there were lots of great benefits as well that we're still living with. I think most people think 60s, they see a flower child dancing through Golden Gate Park, smoking a joint, bongo drums in the background, and the soundtrack by Bob Dylan. It was much more complicated than that, Emily. You know, the topography of America was very uneven. We had hard hats who held up signs that said, America, love it or leave it, against the kids Mm -hmm. who were burning the American flag and carrying around pictures of Ho Chi Minh. You really are a sort of a tweener, the 50s and 60s. I am a tweener. I was born in 1940. Yeah, so reading this, I'm thinking, well, you're 10 years younger than me, older than me. I was born in 1950. And it's just that much difference because I don't remember the 50s that well. And I was really a child of the 60s. But you were kind of came out of the straight-laced and, and, and had to make the transition into that whole 60s. But you was, were an observer in a sense. It was, it was unsettling. Well, I, I was a weekend hippie. I'd put on my bell-bottom trousers and my peasant <laughs> shirt, my, my, my Mexican sandals, round up my kids, and we'd go out to the Renaissance Fair. Yeah. And play hippie for eight hours and then go home and put on my button-down shirt and go off to yeah. a good restaurant in, in West Los Angeles or something. I was obviously, look, I was very intrigued, but I was deeply moved by the civil rights movement. Race had always been a big issue for me. It was a great moral cause as the 60s began. And then um, Vietnam, at the beginning, I believe John Kennedy when he said the domino theory. If we lose Vietnam, all of Southeast Asia will fall. But then I became quickly disenchanted with it. On the other hand, I had a friend I lost in 1968. Mm-hmm. My brother went over there. It was a great nerve-wracking time for our family. And as I looked at the protests, which I think did help end the war, I don't think it was the sole cause for it, awful lot of those young protesters had the privilege of a student deferment, and they were not being subjected to the same thing. And they were being so tough on these military guys coming home. We don't have that anymore. But that was going on. So emotions were roiled during the 60s. And as I always have to point out to people, in 1966, when I was in California, the summer before the summer of love, when the counterculture mm-hmm. was taking off, Ronald Reagan was being elected governor yeah. of that state by a landslide margin. I'm curious about the drug culture, because in a sense, you were already a little bit past that, which really came sweeping in around 1965 and, you know, came into the college campuses. And a lot of the people you touch on in your book had experiences with that. Did you, or were you already? No, I talk about it in the book. I, um, I inhaled, uh, <laughs> like everyone else at the time. You're living yeah. in California. It would pop up at establishment dinner parties as a dessert course. Sure. 
uh, it didn't really take with me. I got the appeal of it, but I didn't do well on it. And I was a guy who could finally afford a better brand of scotch at that stage in my life. I was a little more interested in that and good red wines. And then the health fitness took over. I mean, I really began to get physically fit when I was living in California. Now, the consequences of the drug culture are often dismissed by people who say, well, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, ha, 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 because they'd had too many joints. But what we're left with is a drug culture that eats away at our inner city. And we don't have a good program for dealing with the residual effects of the drug culture. Uh, Bill Buckley, who's the godfather of modern conservatism, wants to have medical marijuana use legalized. He says, and he's right, it's easier for a college student to find a joint than it is for a sailor to find a brothel. And we have 100 million people in this country who probably have tried marijuana, who've broken the law. So we, we need to get real about this at some point. You don't blame that culture, though, for what was left behind. No, no, I'm not blaming it, but I'm just saying it took root at that time. Mm -hmm. And I do think that a lot of people uh, had a, much too careless an attitude about drugs and the eventual consequences mm -hmm. of the use of drugs. LSD, you know, Tim Leary, who came out of this area, I did a long interview with him, 40 minutes in, in Southern California on the air, and he was very charming, very persuasive. Uh, you know, t uh, tune in, turn on, and yeah, drop right, out. Right, exactly. But I have a friend whose brother will never be the same because yeah, he too. really went hard down the LSD road. How do you, as you, you get into this in your book, but the people who came out of that same era, I mean, you, you use Clinton and Gingrich as an example, two Southern guys, roughly the same age, and they just go like this. They both anti-war, avoided the draft. I call them two guys who were separated at birth. They were both from dysfunctional families in the South, both prematurely gray, both Gabby, both political junkies, um, both had trouble with women later in their political careers, and you're right. Now, Gingrich began as a moderate Republican, but couldn't win in Georgia as a moderate Republican, so he went hard right, and then he got elected to Congress, and then he saw the possibilities of organization. People forget that the conservatives were learning about organization as well as the left. The same kind of imaginative spirit that to put together the big march on the Pentagon, Republicans took that ability to organize, and they figured out the uh, votes that they had to have, and they built a whole new party by going into the South, going to the old working class of the Democratic Party for their ends. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a roll of the dice. You had a lot of people who were uh, screaming radicals in the 60s are now very conservative. There's a man in the book by the name of Tom Turnipseed who was George Wallace's press secretary, now has devoted his life to racial equality in South Carolina, a real crusader about racial equality. I was struck, though, by, <laughs> this is a phrase my father always uses, how like themselves all these people still are all these years later. So many of the people you chose have not changed. I mean, you, you said right. one that has is Chris Christopherson, one of your friends, but most people are more uh, sort of dedicated to whatever their issue was. Well, I think that that's true. I think that they have matured in, in how they approach it. If you could find one big fault with the left in the 60s, it, it was all about tactics and not about strategy. What were the end consequences? And the pendulum swung too far in many instances. That's what the Republicans took advantage of. And within families, for example, people who might be politically sympathetic to a liberal point of view, we're saying, filthy speech movement, what does that get us? Mm. So you organize the campus of Berkeley, but what about the working class areas in Oakland? What are you doing about that? Uh, when the draft went away, a whole lot of that passion went away, and then people said, 
well, wait a minute, my friend Ward Saul, the great satirist out there, said, ah, this generation, you put a bumper sticker on the Volkswagen, it says McCarthy for president, you drive around for six months, he doesn't get elected. They say, that's it, I've given up on the system. Uh, staying power was a big piece of it. Republicans did a better job with staying power. They organized themselves, think tanks, publications. Mm -hmm. They looked at what the issues were going to be that they thought would play on their behalf, and they went right after them. And the liberals were less, they were, they were splinter groups. Or, or a lot of them have broken off and done other things. Yeah, that's right. And they, and they did when they, they needed to reorganize the kinds of delegates that they had at conventions, so they diversified it a lot. And that diversification got broken up into a lot of little interest groups who saw the world through this prism. That's what they were interested in. So the Democrats continued to fight among themselves where the Republicans were staying organized. Now, senior members of the Republican Party say, look, we're making the same mistakes the Democrats did in 68. Hubris, we're fighting among ourselves, we're not paying attention to what the country wants, and Democrats are electing people like Jim Webb, who was a Vietnam War hero, and they're counting on him now in the, in the party. So. You know, that's what keeps us all interested in the political arena, Emily. I, I was really fascinated with a lot of the things you were talking about, the women's movement, because I was obviously young then, but Gloria Steinem, some of the, the, the leaders of the movement. Has, has, has that movement stopped? I mean, there are so many things that still no, seem like... No, it's taking like hold in different ways. I'm, as you know, I'm the father of three daughters uh, who are all highly trained professionals and wanting to be mothers, and they are mothers, two of them. And I think the choices are so much more vexing now. We've made the big gains about more women in law school, more than half. Doctors. Very few CEOs, very few Very few CFOs. CEOs because the mummy track, yeah. we've not worked out. What happens when a 35-year-old woman right. wants to leave the job, have a baby, and spend a year at home as she should with that baby? What I keep saying to young women, it's about choices. Don't be, don't be somehow stampeded into thinking that you can't stay home. You shouldn't. If you want to stay home, you ought to have that choice. But then we have to have a construct in society about how we allow that to happen. And maybe in some cases there will be what I call career interruptus. They just are not going to be able to stay on that same track. I want to ask you about something you said uh, a week or two ago on Laura Ingram's radio show about civil discourse and what has happened. And you touched on it in the book, too. What has happened with talk radio, which has it's, it's largely a conservative voice, largely speaking to people of like mind, what should it be? Well, I would just like to see a little more variety. And I also, I have, I've had a couple of discussions with Laura Ingram and Hugh Hewitt about this mm -hmm. on the air. And my big argument is that the country is interested in solutions. And if a solution comes from a conservative and it works, people are willing to embrace that. If it comes from a liberal and it works, they're willing to embrace that. But we've stratified so much of our public discourse that if you're a liberal, then you're somehow unpatriotic. Um, Hugh Hewitt was going through my book and parsing sentence by sentence, but he didn't mention Newt Gingrich, who said, we have a president who doesn't know anything. This is within his own party. Uh, I just would like to have a richer dialogue as much as anything else. I think some of these people are very smart. Rush Limbaugh is an American original. You know, he, he created the form. He pays attention to what's going on. He takes full advantage of it. Laura is very smart and articulate and very popular. There are a lot of them out there to open the mic and pull the pin on the grenade and just let it go. There seems to be no antidote on the left, though. None. I mean, no. we have some, a couple of local people, but nobody on the national level. No, and, uh, in part because the conservatives have always been better at marshalling the arguments and putting them into a neater box and not getting into this argument of internecine warfare, as I describe it. 
they kind of join ranks and march forward with a kind of more direct point of view. Um, and, you know, they were helped, I think, along the way by the excesses of some people on the left and the, and the silliness that went on. There's no question about it. You were on Dynamis this morning. Actually, you were supposed to be. I, don't, I didn't hear the segment. Did you actually do it? I was not on. He, didn't, he, pr- he promoted you. But he, he was back on the air right. today. Um, did he deserve a second chance? Yeah. We all deserve a second chance. And I thought what he had to say was the appropriate thing to say. I was hoping he would say something like that, which he did. He's, I know mm-hmm. from personal communication with him that he learned a lot. Um, but life is about redemption. You know, he paid a penalty, made a mistake. For the rest of his life, he'll be associated with that god-awfully excessive, inappropriate comment that he made about the Rutgers basketball team. But he gets a chance to come back, as everyone does. We've had that with politicians and with members of the clergy and with school teachers and everyone else. So I think it's going to be interesting to listen to Don. I've been very struck as I go across the country by people who say, you know, I really miss the political dialogue that you had there in the morning because he, he did a good job with that. On the other hand, two of my very closest friends in New York are African-Americans. One's on Wall Street, one's a retired physician. They love Imus. They listen yeah. to him every morning. When he came out with that, mm. they were on the phone or emailing me saying, that's it, he's really crossed the line. And I, I happen to believe that as well. Would you go on, though? I would go on there now, I think, having heard what he had to say this morning. Yeah. My line was, i got to hear what he has to say and how he's going to conduct himself. And when he said that those women who accepted his apology don't have to worry about him doing anything that will embarrass them again, I take him at his word. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some dust-ups on the air in the old days. I mean, he... This is a familiar figure in the Boston area. Janet Langhart was yeah. married to Bill Cohen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he said some highly inappropriate things about her. I called in and went on the air and said, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Stop it. And you need to apologize to her. She called me 30 minutes later almost in tears. Mm-hmm. She said, you're the only one who spoke up. Now, I wasn't being a martyr about it. But in society, we've got to learn when to ring the bell and say, this is going way too far. And by the way, which takes me back to Boone, in the 60s, when kids went too far, there were too few adults who said, wait a minute. Well, we still got that going on. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Right. Tom Brokaw, Boom. Emily, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this podcast, one in a series of interviews conducted by Greater Boston host Emily Rooney. We invite you to watch Greater Boston weeknights on WGBH2 at 7 p.m. and again at midnight. The program is also available through Comcast On Demand.